we all give authority to someone or something. We all have some source of authority in our lives that we submit to, whether that's someone or something. You know, a few common ones maybe in life today are we submit to the authority of reason. That if it's, it's reasonable to me, to my brain, then it must be trustworthy and, and true. Or if there's a study to show data, then it must be true. I'm, you know, full sail sold on this idea. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm pro-data. I'm very glad that uh, we know that smoking uh, has causation with lung cancer. So I'm not against those things by any means. Um, but we didn't know that until 1964. Okay, and so uh, we, we submit to the authority of reason, or a big one right now is we submit to the authority of feelings, internal feelings, where we think, if I feel it, it must be true. And I must follow my feelings, that that's my inerrant guide in life. Or, or maybe we submit to the authority of marketing, right? Anybody else? fallen for that one too many times, or the authority of Google. How often do we Google something to win an argument, uh, to look something up to, to prove a point? See, I told you, Google said it. Or media, whatever that looks like for you, whether that's the news, or, or the influence of movies, music, a documentary you saw, or maybe the authority of social pressure. It's becoming more and more common in the, in the world we live in, especially for young people, where if my, my group or my community believes this or does this, I am going to do this or, or believe this. Where we, we see this a lot, whether it's my social group or my political party or, or whatever it is, my friend group, and we're finding we're living in a time where we're shifting almost to a sort of honor-shame culture especially with social media, where we have to post a certain thing or uh, make ourselves look a certain way or say a certain thing, otherwise we will be shunned from the group that we identify with. We like to think we're all self-made, right? Radical individualists, uninfluenced, we're autonomous selves, but that belief even in itself is greatly influenced from the current cultural thinking of our day. So the question is not if you give authority to someone or something, but who or what do you give authority to in your life? Because we don't give our authority to just anybody. Imagine going up to a kid, you can use one of my kids as an example, you go up to my five-year-old and uh, you write over a power of attorney to him to manage all your finances or your will, right? No, we all have a filter for who we give authority to in our lives and who we don't, hence the five-year-old kid. But how do you know your authority figure is trustworthy or worthy of authority in your life? Or how do you know one isn't? With that question in mind, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. We are working our way through a series that we have just simply called Discovering Jesus. And so we're asking the question of who is Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth that has changed history? 
Who is he? And we're asking that question against the backdrop of the first written account of his life. And in the first whole act of the first part of Mark, we see simply people's reactions to Jesus. And today we see people reacting to the authority of Jesus. Let's start in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. We'll stop there. First, we see that he taught with, Mark says, authority, meaning his teaching was original rather than derived, where scribes wouldn't teach with any originality in this time. They would say, you know, Moses said this or Rabbi so-and-so said this. But then Jesus comes on the scene and teaches in a whole different way. And we aren't told exactly what he said or exactly what he taught. We're just, we're showed that he seemingly did so in a way that revealed he was more than just a man. Like imagine you were tinkering with your car, trying to fix it, you and your buddies, you're like, oh, I think you should do this. It's the radiator. No, it's the I don't really know cars very well. What's another car? Uh, the air filter, uh, you know, that's like all I know. Radiator, air, air filters, one of those. Um, and then, uh, but then the person, and you can't figure it out, but then the person who actually created your car came and started teaching and saying, no, you're way wrong. It is neither of those things. There would be a, a felt sense of authority not theory about it, not rabbi so-and-so said it's the air filter, but the person who designed it all coming on the scene and teaching and showing you that maybe, hey, you're not quite right. And his words carried this authority, like in the, the Genesis, Genesis account where God's words held the power to create. Continuing in verse 23, Mark writes, just then... A man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Just then, they were all, oh, excuse me. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Notice the, the different reactions to the authority of Jesus. Some are astonished, uh, amazed at the authority. Others, threatened such as the unclean spirit. He says, Who, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The unclean spirit was threatened, although his theology was actually spot on. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. But he saw Jesus' authority not as a comfort, but as a threat. Why? Because he knew he was going against that very authority. And the same is true for us. We can see the authority of Jesus as a comfort, like a rescuing embrace in a world of chaos. Or we can see the authority of Jesus as a threat, 
to our autonomy, to how we want to live our lives. Uh, we want the autonomy to, to be able to do what we think is best, even if it goes against what he wants. And, and many of us, we do this in less dramatic ways and oftentimes very simple ways. Well, I mean, we're not trying to be an evil spirit possessing anybody, but we don't want God to see maybe our finances or our media consumption habits, or, or we don't want to be honest with our church community about what's really going on in our life because, hey, they're going to pull that God card. They're going to bring God into the situation, whether it's relationships, finances, taxes, cutting corners, our thoughts towards others. We, we want to hide those things from God or anyone else who would call us to living under his authority because we want autonomy. We want autonomy. You know, I had a friend, um, I don't know, five years ago or so, who I kept trying to get a hold of. He had reached out and said, hey, give me a call sometime. So I kept trying to get, get a hold of him. And you know, call him once every couple weeks and never heard anything. And it wasn't until a year or two later, I finally figured out what was going on. He had become addicted to cocaine. And after he had went through treatment and got better and God really got a hold of his life. And he, he told me after, though, he said, I didn't want to talk to any of my friends who would be a positive influence in my life, who would lovingly call me out and call me up to Jesus's standard, to Jesus's authority. So he just isolated from anyone that would call him back to the word of God. We are threatened by Jesus's authority when we are so fixated on wanting the autonomy to do whatever we want, whenever we want it. So, so the same authority that can be the deepest comfort can also be the greatest threat. The question is whether we are running from Jesus's authority or surrendering and conforming to it. We see he, he teaches with this authority. And then moving on, we see that he has the authority to heal. Verse 29 says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve him. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So they come after the sun had set, which was marking the end of Sabbath. So Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown. So then they come to bring all this, this work for Jesus to do, to heal. And, and, and he does it. He has authority to heal. And I want to be totally sympathetic to, to anyone here who maybe struggles to believe in, you know, demons and miraculous healings. I mean, do we really believe in those things in 2024, Western, secular America? You know, I was at uh, Clyde Coffee the other day, and this guy had a laptop with a sticker that said, Satan is rad. And I thought, wow, it's really good to be back in Missoula. It hasn't changed all that much. But do we really believe in Satan, 
miraculous healings, demons, evil spirits. And in 2024, you know, Christians, we believe in a spiritual realm, that there's more than just physical, material matter in this world. And if we believe in any sort of God or, or spiritual realm, then they're saying that, well, there's a negative side to that realm, really isn't all that crazy. And to not believe in a spiritual realm at all is actually to be in a very global minority. Uh, that idea is very much a Western secular sliver of belief. And if there isn't any demonic realm or great enemy, then we have to deduce that the atrocities that have littered our human history, just pick one, that was all just humans. There was no greater evil force behind that. So in some ways, it's encouraging to me that there's, there is a demonic force behind those humans, behind those evil atrocities that have littered our past. Where Yeah, humans are responsible, but there's a bigger story here at play as well. C.S. Lewis said it so well in, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We often fall off either side of the horse. You know, me, I'm kind of a skeptic at heart. Uh, somebody tells me something. It could even be my wife. And I'm like, I don't know. I got to fact check that. Google, you know. Uh, but my te tendency is to kind of roll my eyes at the idea of something being Satan or demonic. You know, I got a flat tire. Satan's just after me today, you know? So, but I kind of lean that way, and I, but I think that's actually really naive of me. But, but for others of us, maybe even in this room, some of you hyper-fixate on the demonic and worry so much that the devil is behind every corner and every bush. But Rebecca McLaughlin, I think, says this so well, uh, but if there is a God who created the universe we cannot exclude the possibility of miracles. The one who made the laws of nature in the first place can surely intervene when he chooses. So the question wouldn't be, are miracles possible, but is there a God? Because if there is a God and a spiritual realm, certainly he can intervene. And according to Mark, there is a lot more to this world than just what meets the eye. He doesn't just look at demons, but, but of healing. Mark is showing us the, that Jesus has authority over sickness. You know, in, in Matthew's written account of the gospel, to get a little more insight, uh, he writes this, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that, was, uh, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So in Matthew's account, we, we see that this prophecy in Isaiah isn't just about a spiritual healing, but a physical one. And this was actually a, a main passage that A.B. Simpson, the founder of our whole denomination, used for his theology of, of physical miraculous healing. And certainly it doesn't mean God always heals. And healing on this earth is only temporary anyway. But really, he either answers our prayers for healing now 
or he answers it when we are given a resurrected body in this new heaven and new earth. But Mark wants us to see that this Jesus of Nazareth has authority over the material, spiritual, and intellectual world. He's trying to prove his claim at the beginning that he indeed is the Son of God. That he has authority over everything. He didn't just teach like another uh, rabbi. And he healed miraculously, drove out evil spirits to show that indeed he is the Son of God. If this is true, if Jesus has all this authority, why do we resist that in our lives? If he has all, all this authority to heal, drive out evil spirits, to teach with a new authority that we've never seen, why do we resist that? You know, I wonder if some of us struggle to give Jesus, to, to really give Jesus authority in our lives because we have seen authority abused or misused in other relationships. You think of maybe you had a parent whose authority bring back, brings back terrible memories in your childhood or a, a teacher that was supposed to uh, be there to support you, use their power against you in some way, or the government or a politician, maybe a coach, or sadly, maybe a pastor, a church community, an authority that's supposed to be there to serve, but instead of using that authority to serve, you uses it to take, to use you. And we are taught to be suspicious of any authority figure. Like, who are you to tell me what to do? Or, or we live in a time where all authority is oppressive, or all, any sort of like institution submitting ourselves to something is oppressive. And, you know, if I give Jesus trust, won't he just abuse that too? So we, what we do is we project those heart-wrenching experiences that we've had, and we project that onto Jesus. We say, well, isn't he power-hungry too? Isn't he just in it for himself? Doesn't he just, just have an ego, and then he tells us to go tell everybody else about him? This is starting to sound like a big, bad pyramid scheme. So many of us struggle to willingly surrender every square inch of our lives to the authority of Jesus because we project corrupt human authority onto him. That's one reason. Another is this. Deep down, we want to just be our own authority. We do. The original fall of mankind happened. Why? Because Adam and Eve wanted to be their own authority rather than God. Because oftentimes we think we know better than God. We might not say that out loud because it sounds outlandish, but by our actions, we prove that, we oh, well, that's pretty true in our lives. Why would we resist surrendering authority to Christ even though he's the one that's all-knowing? Even though he's the one that created the world? Because we think our way is better. We, we think we know more. But do we realize how prideful we are when we live like that? We think our authority... Our feelings are more trustworthy than his. Like, wouldn't you hate it if someone who had just no understanding about your job came in and started giving you simple fixes on how to do it? 
right? Wouldn't that be annoying? Or maybe an unmarried person gives you a quick fix for your marriage. You know, you're, you're vulnerable with them. You're like, man, yeah, we're just really struggling. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And they're like, oh, have you just tried loving her? Women love that stuff. Like, have you just tried loving her? Or a person without kids, uh, you know, is the expert on parenting, starts telling you how to raise your kids, even though they have uh, literally no experience in raising children. But we do that all the time. Not just with politicians, but with God, where we think we have a better understanding than him. You know, God, I think you're wrong on this one. Most of what you say is good, okay? But you're wrong on this one, so I'm just going to kind of go my own way. So in our actions, we say that we think we're more trustworthy than him. We think we're the ones that are all-knowing, not him. And that's why we we just don't surrender parts of our lives to his authority. Because we think we know better than God. We, We want to be our own master. And that's not the call of Christianity C.S. Lewis, in another book, Mere Christianity, wrote this. He said, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. All that to say, we resist giving Jesus authority in our lives when we think that we are a more trustworthy figure than he is. Or that he's not a trustworthy figure at all. But what's the truth about his authority? You know, authority in itself is not a bad thing. You know, a a child may dislike authority when you say, no, buddy, you can't have ice cream at 9 p.m. But that that same child's going to be longing for authority when they find themselves in a dangerous situation. They're going to want that same authority to come and rescue them. Or you may get upset at the authority of a police officer when they give you a speeding ticket. But as soon as you have a child missing, who are you going to call? So <clears throat> when there is a negative authority figure, we, we want a positive authority figure, right? To come and take them out. I, I tell, um, I make up the stupidest stories every night to my children. And Grayson always wants me to tell them a story. And I'm like running out of ideas. And they're just so dumb. Um, <clears throat> so I'll tell this fictional made up, ridiculous story and then at the end he'll say dad there was no bad guy in that one so i get supposed to have a bad guy you know so even even he's like longing for a story of a negative authority figure to be taken out by a positive trustworthy safe authority figure paul writes this in colossians he says jesus he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly he triumphed over them in him Notably, Paul refers to Satan and demons as, quote, rulers and authorities. So there's your negative authority figure. But but Christ came and disarmed them and disgraced them and triumphed over him. So it's it's not authority itself that we don't like. It's when that authority goes against our current desires. 
Authority in itself is not a bad thing. It's neutral, like, like money. It could be used for good things, could be used for bad things. It's how someone handles that authority. And how did Jesus handle his authority? Just a couple things. One, he used his authority to serve. In a world of people wanting to take, to use authority to take, Jesus came to give. In a world where people are wanting to grasp at prestige and uh, position, Jesus surrendered his. He chose to take the lowest seat. In the language of Paul in Philippians, he wrote about him saying, he who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. If this is true, Jesus came. He he didn't think his uh, position was something to be exploited. He came in, quote, the form of a servant, and he humbled himself for us. He didn't come to exploit his position as people so often do. He came to be a servant. He humbled himself. The one who all things were created through him, by him, and for him, that God humbled himself. So Jesus came not to abuse or exploit authority, but to use his authority to serve and to live the life we couldn't. Number two, his authority is the only sinless authority. The writer of Hebrews shows us that Jesus lived without sin. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Okay, you know that. Why is that important? Lots of reasons, but here, why is that important regarding his authority? Why can we trust Jesus's authority in our life? Because he is sinless. Anytime you have been wrongly used or abused or exploited by an authority figure, it's because they sinned against you. But what about an authority figure who can't sin against you? Unable to. Cannot. Jackie Hill Perry writes this in her book, Holier Than Thou. She says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? If we're going to give authority to somebody or something, shouldn't someone who cannot sin against you be the most trustworthy authority in your life? Even more trustworthy than yourself. Because I hate to say it, you're not sinless. I'm not sinless. Anybody else made some bad choices with their authority before? I have. But if Jesus Christ is holy and sinless, then he is the most trustworthy authority figure you could ever ask for. Because he cannot use his authority to sin against you. He can't. So the call of Christianity is to surrender everything in our life, every square inch, not just our Sunday Christian life, but 
everything about us surrendering to the authority of Christ, the one who cannot exploit you. To surrender to his authority, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To follow him, to actively participate as a disciple, learning more and more, to, to become like him, to follow him, to surrender everything in our life to him, like we looked at last week. To give him total authority in your life. It's more than just believing the right things in your head. I mean, Mark, Mark points out that the unclean spirit knew the right things in his head. He said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Or verse 34, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. They had some really good theology, and I'm all for theology. I love theology. But at some point, we need to do something with that theology. The theology isn't the end in itself. It's a means to an end. And the end is to trust and surrender our life to Christ. That's what we looked at last week, where they dropped everything and followed him. The call of Christianity isn't just to believe the right things. That's part of it. But to surrender everything to the authority of Christ. Is there anywhere you're holding back? where we're, you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus. You've surrendered 90% or so. It's like a reverse tithe or something. But we've held back a sliver. Because deep down, maybe we don't trust that Jesus has our best interest in mind or our deepest joy in mind. So growing in Christ as a follower of Jesus is learning to Little by little, surrender more and more and more to him. To let go and, and to trust him with our lives more than we trust ourselves. A.W. Tozer said this, He, the Holy Spirit, wants to possess you so that you are no longer in command of the little vessel in which you sail. It's like God is already dwelling on the ship. He created the ship. Uh, but you keep trying to tighten your grip on the helm, wanting to control it, take direction of your life. But growing in Christ is a recurring act of taking your hands off and surrendering to him as the chief captain of your life and realizing he made the ship, he made the sea, he even made my, my hands that are so tightly gripped on the helm anyway. It's surrendering the authority that he already had. You know, it could be like your kids saying, you know, hey, I'm not going to go to bed. And you're thinking, that's cute, uh, buddy. You don't have the authority or autonomy to do that. I'm sorry. Uh, but, we, but we do that with God. God, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you authority. It'd be like, like Hamlet telling Shakespeare that he has no authority in his life. It's like, buddy, you, you wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for him. Like Paul, when he's preaching in Acts, he says, in him we live and move and have our, our being. C.S. Lewis, again, this is the last C.S. Lewis quote of the day, I promise. He said, when you are arguing, I'm using all my good quotes in one sermon, so for the rest of the year, don't expect much. When you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It's like cutting off the branch you are sitting on. So to deny Jesus' authority in your life is to deny reality. We're living in reality is surrendering to his authority and trusting what he brings your way. 
That's what the Christian life is. It's, it's surrendering your authority. It doesn't mean we don't have any play in this or don't have any control of our lives, but it's surrendering our authority under his to say, not my will, but yours. To say, my hands are open. If you call me to this, I'll go. If you call me to stay, I'll stay. So what teaching do you give authority to in your life? Who has authority in your life? Who calls the shots in your life? Because we all give authority to someone or something. The question is just if that someone or something is trustworthy. And are they really in charge? To, To give Jesus total reign and authority in your life is to live in unison with the way that you were designed. And sometimes it takes a tragedy to see the reality that, hey, we're really not in control as much as we may think. Joy Davidman was a Jewish-American atheist and poet. She would go on to be the woman that broke C.S. Lewis's heart. Uh, And she was an atheist. She assumed atheism was true. Um, But she said she never really developed a proof for it. She thought she'd do that when her kids got older. And so she was married to another writer named Bill who was an alcoholic, unfaithful, a workaholic. And one day he called from his New York office and said that he was having a a nervous breakdown. And then he hangs up. And so she, you know, understandably so, was frantically making phone calls, trying to figure out what happened to him. And uh, eventually it was to the point where she said, there's nothing to do but just wait and see if he turned up dead or alive. And in that silence, something unexpected happened. She wrote that, for the first time in my life, I felt helpless. For the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. All my defenses, all the walls of arrogance and cocksureness and self-love behind which I had hid from God went down momentarily and God came in. We have so much confidence and trust in our own authority and control until the rug of life is pulled out from underneath us. Then all of a sudden we are just exposed where we see reality for what it really is. That you are so dependent on the authority, even if you deny it, you are so dependent on the authority and goodness of God for everything, for your breath, And then we realize God has been the one in charge this whole time. And we're foolish to think we are the master of our own fate or the captain of our own soul. So are you trying to live autonomously, not realizing you are actually running from reality? Like Jonah running from God, thinking he can escape God in the very world that he created. Worship team, you can join me back up on stage. So in this passage, Mark wants us to see that this Jesus of Nazareth isn't like any other teacher or rabbi, but one who has authority over the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And and the call of the Christian is to willingly place ourselves under that sinless, trustworthy authority and surrender everything to him with open hands. And we can trust that we can give him full authority in our lives because he is trustworthy. He isn't power hungry. He gave up his power so that he could come as a man to redeem humanity. And you can either run from his authority or surrender to it. 
His authority is trustworthy, even more trustworthy than ourselves. So I'll end with this. If you're going to give someone or something authority in your life, why not him? Would you pray with me? Father, even this morning as we just come before you, we recognize your authority over this world, over this place, over our lives. God, that you created us in your image and that you sent your son who came willingly of his own accord to humble himself, to live the life we could not, and to die the death that we deserve. So as we go on our weeks, Father, I pray that you would help us live this out, that we would surrender our lives to your authority willingly and joyfully, trusting that you are good and you are for us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.